Welcome to the Think Christian Podcast, where we talk about faith and pop culture, because there's no such thing as secular. I'm Josh Larson, editor over at thinkchristian.net. It's good to have you listening. Well, our time in O'Kern, Oklahoma has come to an end. After three seasons, Reservation Dogs is over. This is the Hulu FX series that follows four teens who have grown up together in the Muscogee Nation. Created by Sterling Harjo and Taika Waititi, the series was unique in front and behind the camera. It not only focused on a corner of America that's largely been willfully ignored, but it did so with an almost entirely indigenous production team and cast. And the result? It's unlike anything else on TV, really, at least culturally, while at the same time, it's incredibly funny and touching and self-deprecating in a universal way. A conversation about the show on TC has been long overdue. We've never given it full attention in detail before, but I'm kind of glad we saved it until the end of the series so that we can talk about it in its entirety. And I'm happy to have Rosalind Hernandez and J.R. Forresteros on to help me do it. Rosalind, JR, here we are recording shortly after the series finale of Reservation Dogs, which is somewhat hard to believe. No more Bear, Alora, Willie Jack, or Cheese, to say nothing of, you know, the various relatives and community members who they form this sometimes annoying, but I think always caring circle around <laughs> these teens. All those folks no longer in our lives. These are kids who have spent three seasons trying to figure out not just what it means to to grow up, but to do so while being of indigenous descent in contemporary America. I've been ro- I've been watching Reservation Dogs from the start, so this is going to be a loss in my viewing life. How about you two, Roslyn? What what is the series meant to you? Oh wow, it's meant so much. Not just in like representation, which obviously we need more of, but just the way of storytelling is something. Reservation Dogs has just been such a breath of fresh air in the way that it is told and the story that it's telling. So it's not only artistically, but also the meaning of what it's telling. And it's like, okay, so these are the consequences of things that have been done to us historically. Like this is Mm. a story we're entertaining you, but we're also educating you. So that's been, yeah, it's been really great. Yeah. Striking that balance has Mm -hmm. been so impressive without ever feeling lessony or or preachy, but having this, doing it in a way that is entertaining as well. I mean, I can't imagine trying to trying to pull that off. How about you, Jr.? I also have been watching Reservation Dogs from the beginning, and it. So I'm not native at all. My 23 and Me is 100% colonizer. It has been really something to watch a show that is not by me and also is not for me, but Hmm. makes space for me to enjoy and learn as you both said, right? I had actually, I think right around the time the first season launched, I had read a book called we had a little real estate problem, which was a history of native American comedy in the United States. And literally at the end of the book, it's talking about Sterling Harjo and the 1491s and how he was talking to Hulu about a TV deal, right? So, I mean, (laughs) it like ends like right before (laughs) Reservation Dogs became a thing. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things it really digs into in the book is this long history, particularly 
in native communities of laughter as medicine, you know, and laughter as the the way to endure and even find ways to flourish under apocalyptic trauma. And I think that's what I saw from start to finish in Res Dogs was it wasn't like now it's funny, now it's serious, now it's teachable. It was like all of these things all the time mm-hmm. and effortlessly shifted among them because from, again, from my outside perspective, that seems to be a lot of what it means to be native in this day and age. And Rosalind, I don't know if you you probably have a lot more insight into that than I do. But again, from from what I had been learning and sort of, you know, from having native friends and stuff like that, they they so many of them just said, yes, this show is us, you know. Yeah, I'm coming at it from a similar perspective, JR. Haven't had the genetic confirmation, but I think it's safe to say. <laughs> same same <laughs> perspective. And I think my only previous exposure was maybe like a, a college study trip that I took. This would have been in New Mexico. So it was among Zuni and Navajo communities. But the Native experience is one that has largely been ignored by pop culture. And what a gift, as you said, to be brought into that experience by such sure and deft creative hands. Uh, And this goes back to the storytelling you were talking about, Rosalind, is it's a very irreverent series in a lot of ways. And that fits because these are teenagers who are the main characters, right? So you're going to bring on that personality, but it's also affectionate. It's, It's incredibly affectionate for this community. At the same time, you know, it has all that goodwill, goodwill, but I don't think it's Pollyannish about the struggles the community faces, including the the difficulties within the community. So it's very clear-eyed uh, tone that this has, and it's been a joy to, to be able to be a part of that just as a viewer. Now, because it's over, the one thing we have to talk about, it's always a heightened experience to watch a series finale, and I think... You know, it's probably better to react to it a few weeks later, but we're here now. (laughs) It's fresh. (laughs) Just talking about how uh, Harjo did end up with his creative team, how he ended this. Um, Were you guys happy, JR? I mean, no, because I want this to never, ever stop being made, right? But uh, given that, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it was, it was as soon as they said third and final season, right? I've spent since that announcement thinking like, how do you even end this show? Especially because at the end of season two, they get to California, right? They, they did, they did the thing that was the thing from season yep. one. So I, I almost, you know, I didn't even know what to expect from season three as a whole, as season three began un- unfolding. I just kept wondering like, where, where, where do you end this? And then to end it with a celebration of, loss and community and the endurance of all of the things that the show set out to talk about from episode one was, yeah, I mean, in, in retrospect, it's like, well, yeah, where else could they have ended it? And yet it did the thing that I think great art Mm. does, which surprised me in a way that felt inevitable only in retrospect, you know, Um, or again, maybe I'm just bad at storytelling, which I full caveat could be, but <laughs> I, I could never have predicted that this is where it would end. And yet now I feel like it's the only way it could have ended. Yeah. Did you find it satisfying, Rosalind? I did. And, oh, and I also would like to clarify, I am Mexican-American and I do have indigenous ancestry, but I'm not like, I'm not uh, connected to a Native American tribe from the U.S., but I do 
think I have been working on reconnecting with my ancestral roots. And that's something that we talk a little, we might talk about later a little bit more. When I think about the storytelling, as I think about indigenous storytelling, you know, whenever we hear an indigenous elder, they won't just come out and say like, this is what you need to do, or this is what I think. They'll tell you a story. Mm. <laughs> and the story always has like, there's always an end goal to it. There's, it's like a parable, right? Like the parable sure. is happening. Like Jesus already knows where the story's going. And so in Reservation Dogs, like they already knew what they wanted to say, I think is what I'm thinking about. And they only needed so much time to say it. Mm. And it wasn't a show that wanted to keep going. It was a show that had something to say it to say and said it and did it well. And I think even though it's sad, <laughs> it's also very anti uh, like capitalistic, right? And it's very like against the culture of how television and Hollywood is made. And even just in that fact, like I really like that, that in the entertainment industry, indigenous people are telling their stories in the way that indigenous storytelling is, is done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a complete self-contained experience and story. And boy, are those rare now in Hollywood, to your point. Everything has to continue to expand and multiply and turn in on itself even. But you have something here that is of a whole. And I think that's what the finale itself, the episode itself, it was satisfying for me in the ambition of trying to do that differently. If I if I had had any qualms, it was that I almost wish it had circled back and contracted down to be to the four friends a little bit more. And it does have that element, right? But they they become such a part of this larger community we've been introduced to that I recognized, oh, that's the bigger, more ambitious project story, to your point, Rosalyn, that Res Dogs wanted to tell. And that's why we get this finale without spoiling any details that is about the community. And the brilliance of these three seasons is that we can look at almost every face and have some sense of, oh yeah, I think that's her story. And I'll confess because of the gaps between seasons, I wasn't always sure. I, I would I would try to remember now who's that again and, and who are they related to? And, and so it wasn't like I had a family tree in my mind, but it was a familiar community that is brought together for that final episode. So even though part of me, and this kind of leads to, I want to talk about the performances a little bit, wishes I'd been able to spend more time with the four kids in this final episode, I do recognize that that would have been come at a cost of missing out on the larger communal experience the episode offers. Rosalind, you may be able to speak to this. One of the members of my preaching team is Navajo. And anytime she's telling me about her family, she'll say my aunt or my sister, and then she'll like stop and kind of roll her eyes and go, okay, well, the way white people talk about it, they're actually like my third cousin twice removed, whatever. But like, you know, <laughs> she's like, we just say aunt or sister or nephew or whatever. And so I think that's a bit of that, right, Josh? I was okay, having the same struggle mm -hmm. of, wait, like whose mom is that or whose aunt or how are they sure. all? And like in a lot of, in a lot of native communities, that's the wrong question to ask, right? Like they're all family and they're all immediate family, right? They're th this, this idea of like extended versus nuclear is a very white Western like framework that 
I didn't even realize I was like imposing on the show until my, you know, till I thought about how my friend talks about her family. And I was like, oh, oops. Yeah, I think that intergenerational aspect of community and what it means is very important because what I feel like was part of season three, like the thesis of season three, right, is that there's intergenerational dynamics going on here. And that's what forms a community. And so for me, you can't just tell the story of these four kids without telling about their history, about their ancestry, about what has happened to their mom, to their grandparents, and how that has affected who they are today. Absolutely. And that richness is it flowers in the final episode, I think. Yeah, it took me a while to realize, okay, so so pretty much everybody is uncle. If they're <laughs> so then I realize, okay, th- I get it now. I see what's see what's going on here. Uh, I do want to circle back to those central four though and just give them some credit, these actors. Alora played by Devery Jacobs, Bear by DeFaro Wunatai, Willie Jack is played by Paulina Alexis, and Cheese is played by Lane Factor. Here's my question for you guys, Rosalyn, based on the face you just pulled. I think I know your answer, but we'll, we'll maybe let you go first here. Um, is there a character now that it's over, you're going to continue th- to think about among those four, maybe a little bit more, and maybe because you're a little worried for them still? Because I think we get, I don't know if we get complete closure on any of the four, that wouldn't be right. They're not at that stage of life, right? So that's impossible. But we get hints, a, a little bit more hints for where some of them are headed than others. Is there one of the four that you're you're just going to kind of linger towards, Rosalind, and, and maybe two months from now say, boy, I wonder what, what he's up to or she's up to? I think I, I just, I love cheese. I think I just identify a lot with cheese. I am like, oh my gosh, there's so many like things about his personality that I would do or that I think like, oh, wow. Like I really appreciate that about him. But I think it's between him and Elora. You know, Elora's development in the season is a lot. She's going to school. She's finding out about her family. Um, and so, you know, there's that aspect. And then Jesus is the youngest one, you know, he, he's kind of feeling like he's being left behind. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I really, I'm going to think about cheese. I I'm glad that he has grandma Irene. So that's going to be great. And the elders, you know, but the uncles, but, um, yes, cheese is, has a special place in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> that was my guess based on your face. And I think I'm with you. I, <laughs> I think throughout the series, he felt like he was out of place more than the other three, partly because of his personality, partly because of his younger age, yeah, and his interests as well. In some ways, he seemed tapped into the, I don't want to say outside world, but beyond this community through the internet. You know, he seemed to be aware of of trends and things like that, but which his friends were too, but also made him unique within the community. And he's such a gentle soul. Mm-hmm. And so you do wonder. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. How about you, JR? Is there, is there maybe another character you'll be thinking of? I think, honestly, if you, if you ask it in terms of who I'm most worried about, I genuinely think I'm most worried about Bear. Just because both his mom and Alora mm-hmm. are leaving. And I read his line in the penultimate episode about how Alora could end up having a good relationship with her dad the way he does as one of those jokes that's covering up something that's still a little bit too true, where everyone, including him, knows that he doesn't, but he can't quite face that yet. 
And while he has, he had, you know, he has a job, he's doing something. It, I could, I don't know. I could just see him sort of getting lost, becoming unmoored. Willie Jack, I'm not worried about. She's, she's the new medicine woman for the community. Mm. And I love, I love that she, in the same way that Alora knew she had to leave, Willie Jack knows she has to stay. And that's beautiful. But yeah, I honestly think I'm the most worried about Bear. Yeah, I can see that. That makes sense. In some ways, he seems to have found his place, but there's still some parts of his life that are unresolved. And depending where that takes him, yeah, it it could be difficult. So I did want to touch on, you know, some of the expressions of spirituality throughout the series. We definitely have traditional Muscogee religious practices are just prevalent in in the community. I think a, a lot we see this with the presence of spirits or ancestors who come to visit various characters. But Christianity also plays a part in the show. And this wasn't entirely surprising to me that that trip I mentioned that I went on in college, that was to a church and a Christian school for Zuni and Navajo Navajo families in New Mexico. So I was somewhat aware of the complicated relationship between Christianity and Native Americans. And that's something the show does address in Res Dogs. I think Christianity pops up. There are a couple of moments I think of some comical, that season one bit with the portrait in Willie Jack's family's house, a white Jesus, who she talks to when she passes. Very funny. We meet sort of a white Jesus in the finale of season two when they do get to California, as we were talking about this, this guy on the streets. But then we also in season three, I mean, speaking to the complications of that relationship, that devastating flashback episode dealing with the awful reality of of religious American Indian boarding schools. Uh, This is where kids were taken from their homes to be religiously indoctrinized and often in these horribly abusive ways. So there are a lot of ways this series has touched on the intersection of Christianity and the native experience. What did what did you guys make of that? You want you want to take this one first, Rosalind? Sure. I mean, that's a really big question. It is. It is. This is something that I'm still untangling myself as someone who is, uh, you know, reconnecting with her roots and in that trying to recover spiritual practices that are part of the indigenous history and treasure of the, specifically for me, Nahuatl people of Mexico and the Mixteco people of Mexico, which is where, um, my ancestry is from, I am just, there's a lot of conflict in me because Mm -hmm. there's conflict. And then there's also a a way forward of like this intersection, right? The conflict is that this is a colonizer's religion. This is a colonizer's way of seeing and way of oppressing people. And in that we know that Christianity has been co-opted and used in different ways to, to have power over others. And in another way, I have seen people have a healthy or healing relationship with Christianity or to be Christian and also be indigenous or native and practice indigenous spirituality. And so I think that's where I am at the moment. And I was actually thinking of wearing an orange shirt today in honor of Orange Shirt Day for Canada has a day when they remember, uh, you know, they um, celebrate, not celebrate, but memorialize that this has happened and that it mm-hmm. it's a reality that many kids were taken from their homes. And it comes back to me also to intergenerational trauma. Um, and this is something that season three says very well. You know, you take the kids from their homes 
family and you strip them away from their ancestry. And that's how you basically um, colonize and destroy that community. <laughs> and, you know, genocide is something that happened in our history with um, mm-hmm. indigenous people. And so, yeah, there's a lot of conflict. But I also think about, I mean, at least for me, something that has helped me think about indigenous spirituality and Christianity and kind of resolve that is that when I think about Jesus and when Jesus was born, we get the wise men that are like, hey, there's this star, like we know what that means, right? And these wise men go to Bethlehem and they say like, hey, we know that there's this king that's going to be born. In the narrative, they're not told to stop their religion, whatever that was. Mm. They're invited into the story and they are, and actually God spoke to them through their own spiritual practices to tell them about this. And they are not told to become Jews or they're not told to become Christians later on. And so that's something that I have thought about as I have been reclaiming some of my own indigenous spirituality or practices or have been looking more into that. Yeah, I like I like that angle on that part of the Christ's birth story. That's, that's really interesting. I think it does apply here. I, I almost wonder, JR, what do you think about this? We've talked about how Res Dogs has been, you know, a clear vision from the start. But do you think there's a chance that season three episode uh, flashing back to one of those boarding schools was meant maybe as a little bit of a corrective to the light joking about Christianity that we did see in seasons one and two? I mean, maybe it was always the plan, but I was appreciative of how it it did balance it out is to say, yeah, Christianity is still a presence. It's It's a somewhat unclear, you know, presence in these people's lives now, but Let's go back and be sure to remember where it, the sort of presence it was at one point and not forget that. So I don't know if it was meant as a corrective or always part of the plan, but what'd you, what'd you make of that? And just in general, the, the little cameos of Christianity we got in this series. Yeah. I mean, I preached a whole sermon about sub white Jesus after season one of res dogs, because I think that it said so much in that scene. I'm sure you did. (laughs) Well, because... She she says sup white Jesus, then she immediately looks at a picture of Daniel, who is another deceased person in her orbit, and she has a long conversation with him. Mm. And so, I mean, she's she's functionally communing with Daniel while there's an icon of Jesus on the wall, right? And it's just that the Jesus that she has been presented with is so irrelevant to her lived experience while while Daniel, her her friend, has joined her mm-hmm. ancestors. And so, yeah, this this was a deeply spiritual scene, even as it was also very funny. Yeah, I just think you can't really, at least I can't really joke about the boarding schools because they were they were acts of genocide. Uh, as Rosalind said, the 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 motto of the boarding schools was kill the Indian, save the man. And they were explicitly trying to kill any part of native culture that these kids had. They were beaten and abused if they spoke their own languages. They had to cut their hair. They had to wear Christian clothing, which meant dress European. They had to have a Christian name, which meant like David or Sarah or, you know, some white name. Uh, You know, they had to do all of these things. And the express goal was the complete eradication of any sort of indigenous culture and identity. And yeah, the church in America has never even confessed that. 
let alone begun to take steps towards making repair and a reparation for that. We've never even acknowledged that we were not just on the sidelines of genocide, but, but leading the charge. I mean, the government was taking these kids from their homes, but the churches were the ones who were running the schools. Uh, again, as the, as the episode showed, right? So I think the one thing that I did not see in terms of like contemporary Christian uh, life in this show were, was a native church. Because again, one of the things I know some of my, some of my Navajo friends and I talk about how there are Christian churches that are run by Navajo believers on the Navajo reservation, but they are anti-Navajo. Again, they're colonized faith where Navajo traditional, traditional practices are demonized. You don't speak really Navajo language. All of the songs you sing are like, you know, European hymns or maybe Hillsong or something like that. Right. So again, there's, there's no, there's no, there's no work to ask what does Navajo Jesus look like, right? What, what does the good news of the eternal word preexistent before creation look like when he becomes flesh and makes his home among the Navajo people, right? There, there's no question about that. It's just, again, basically act white. And I, I would have been interested personally, this uh, Sterling Harjo owes me nothing, right? But I would have been really interested in Harjo's take on that aspect of contemporary Christian native relations. Because again, you have a lot of internalized white supremacy and internalized colonialism inside of that. So yeah, I don't know. I, I, I always received the moments in the show when Christianity showed up as a a welcomed criticism you know something that i needed to hear as as the, again as the sure. colonizer right as the person who you know i i definitely represent the people who did this to native communities not the people to whom it was done so i i tried to just simply receive it and and hear it and not just let it you know not just laugh it off i think there's another contrast that comes out for me we see christianity right in like very codified ways. It's like white Jesus, like a picture on the wall. We see the boarding schools, which is the same boarding school that like Grandma Irene and all the other kids go to. It's the same boarding school in that other episode. And then we see like white Jesus, but they're, they are kind of like dropped in that Christianity is dropped into spaces where at, whereas indigenous spirituality Everything is sacred. You don't need to be in a in a school. You don't need to be in a church to have a spiritual connection or to know that there is spirituality there. And, and this is kind of random, but I think of magical realism and why it is so prevalent or like why I was born in Latin America, because in places where indigenous communities have uh, are the ancestors, there's magic, there's spirituality everywhere. And you can have ancestors talking to you and like having that spiritual connection, that spirit, you know, that religious, as you could say, connection and not just in a church, not just at a school or not just when someone's teaching you about Christ. It's, it's happening all the time and it's everywhere. It's the mundane, the quotidian that is always imbued with, with spirit and with life and with, with God. Let's dig a little bit more into some of those ideas, because just a day after the final episode, uh, Sojourners happened to publish a piece that was titled this, 
These Indigenous Spiritual Practices Deepen My Faith, and it's by Sandy Ovale Martinez. This really helped me reframe some of my thoughts as you guys are doing now in conversation about the show's various expressions of spirituality. You know, how how they might not be as far apart as from my perspective, they maybe initially seemed to be that that those the walls that you're talking about, Rosalyn, don't have to be that erected in that way. And so I'm going to quote at length from this. So bear with me here, but it's really good stuff. And I want folks to be able to hear it in her words. So this is Sandy Ovale Martinez. Costa Rican American writer John Manuel Arias often says that he lived in San Jose, Costa Rica, with his grandma and four ghosts. When he shares this fact with Latina folks, he is typically met with curiosity. What are the ghosts' names? How do they communicate with you? Did they follow you to the U.S.? It's a common understanding in many Latin American indigenous cultures that the veil between the living and the dead is thin, and relating with our ancestors can be an everyday occurrence. Scriptures that speak of the clouds of witnesses surrounding those folks who follow Jesus resonate strongly with many Latina folks. We know that those who have endured the race set before them still encourage us today. A little bit later, she goes on, writes this. Many Latines living in this country have adopted a form of white Western Christianity that has come at a great cost to our cultural identity, our communal connection, and our sense of belonging. We face the tension of embracing a faith marked by discourses that demonize indigenous, Afro-Latine, and Mestizo wisdom and spiritual practices. For many Latines who, like me, live in the diaspora or were born in this land, the calling to re-indigenize our faith is not a rejection of our Christian roots. Rather, it is a yearning for a fuller expression of Christianity that honors our rich spiritual and cultural heritages. We showcase the magnificence of a creator God when we honor the multiplicity of experiences and frameworks that are possible in the practice of faith. So again, that was Sandy Ovale Martinez writing at Sojourners. We'll be sure to link to the full piece in our show notes. That was a lot, but just the timing of it was incredible to me that I came across this as I was putting together some notes for our conversation. I knew I had to get your thoughts on it. Rosalind, you've already touched on a couple of these things. And so maybe I'd just like to hear what you make of uh, Martinez's words. They sounds like they sound pretty familiar to you. Yeah, and Sandy's actually my friend. We went to Fuller together. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Uh, you know, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, that is something that I have experienced that my generation specifically, like 1.5 or second generation Latine folks are doing. We are reconnecting to our indigenous roots and re-indigenizing our spirituality so it's it's kind of like naming something that's happening, right? It's that's happening in our culture in in Latinx culture here in the US. And I think it's happening more in the US than it's happening I I have seen some of it happen in Mexico and I think even the government of Mexico is kind of doing some of this work in acknowledging and celebrating more indigenous um roots, but I wonder how much of it is, or I just see the connection to these people that were uprooted, right? Like we have been uprooted. Immigration has uprooted people from where they were. And so we're very much like digging for our roots. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's what colonization has done. It has uprooted us 
even from where we were, like our own land. (laughs) And then like in our minds and in our everyday lives, it has also happened. And so when you uproot someone, like your identity is a little bit jumbled (laughs) because Mm -hmm. you're like, okay, like I'm being told that I'm this or I'm being told to be like this, but there's something in me or there's something in the culture that I'm from that's telling me there's something else. Part of indigenous teachings is that blood has memory. And I think that at least for me, I have felt that. I have come to find out later in life of like things that I do or just the way that I uh, that I think or even interests that I have, they go back to like my indigenous ancestors. And so that's like my ancestors calling me into who I am and my blood, the blood, the memory in my blood calling me back to who I am. And like, that's so true. It's like becoming more of ourselves, becoming more fully ourselves is something that that I think people of our generation specifically and are are really working on and really identifying with. It sounds like a beautiful process, but I imagine at times a difficult one. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there, is it a, a kind of a back and forth where you'll find particular tensions in terms of, you know, your Christian faith, but then the next day, maybe you find a particular affinity that is surprising and affirming. Is that what it's been like? You know, in terms of theology, I have found it very affirming. I think it's Mm. when it comes to community is when it has, there has been more tension. Doing the theological work and finding out, you know, God is everywhere and God speaks to everyone through different means. And when we, I think of it like God is in the center and we're all on on the sides, right? And we all have a different view of God, different perspective. And we need all the perspectives to get a more full view of God and like what we are supposed to be doing in this world, right? As humans. But there's people that think like, well, we have the perspective of God that's right and everything else Mm. is wrong. And that's where that Mm. comes in, right? The demonizing of things. And so, or just thinking that, no, that's not correct. There's only one way of seeing this or spirituality in that way is dangerous. Yeah. That's one of, that's one of the things that's, um, It's really hard to navigate in community. Gotcha. So, JR, you you might know Sandy, too. You write for Sojourners a lot. Any thoughts you had um, after reading her piece and and its connection to Reservation Dogs, possibly? I love the piece. And I, again, because of some of the friendships I have with non-majority culture folk, I feel like I have gotten to have a front row seat to a lot of this decolonizing work. And it's amazing. Like, I love... I love getting to see people I care deeply about, Rosalind, I think, as you so beautifully said, become more authentically themselves, right? And connect more deeply with their ancestry and their culture. I think the caution that I have, that, that this is not from the article, this is more me as, again, the, the white guy watching all of this, is that a lot of white Christians are recognizing the ills of colonialism and the violence that colonialist religion does and white people are starting to try to decolonize also. And I think the the temptation that will be for us and is for us is to appropriate a lot of the 
good and difficult work that indigenous folks like Rosalind are doing and say, oh, that's, that's neat or that's special or that feels really cool. I'm going to, you know, just grab on kind of like what white people did with Buddhism in the nineties, right? Where just all of a sudden everyone was a Buddhist, but none of it actually had anything to do with Buddhism. It was just, you have a little fat Buddha statue and you meditate sort of maybe, I mean, sort of like that, where, where uh, again, essentially what we do is further the colonizing work uh, under the banner of decolonizing. And we continue to do harm to these indigenous communities by continuing to appropriate and, uh, you know, for our own means. And, and I just want to caution us against that because uh, what's happening right now, I think in a lot of Christian circles, is whiteness is getting decentered and, you know, uh, indigenous and black spiritualities are being recovered. And I would never say that we cannot, I don't want to say profit because that's real capitalist, right? I don't want to say that we cannot benefit from that, from that good work. But I think when we continue to platform ourselves as the primary actors and and the ones who arbitrate what's dangerous and what's not and, and, and all of that kind of stuff, we, again, we're not actually doing the difficult work of decolonizing. And so, yeah, as I read the article, as I see the spirituality of reservation dogs unfolding, I find it beautiful. I find it hopeful. I think if if there is going to be a God honoring church in the future of this country, it's going to be one that comes after much repentance and restitution. And uh, it will be one that's not led by whiteness, but is one that is led by those who have been healed of the, the wounds of colonialism by the power of Jesus good news. And I, again, hope I continue to get a front row seat to it because I think it's just good and beautiful work. And I just, yeah, I would just love to caution folks who look and sound like me to be real careful. Yeah, it's a good word. But if, if we benefit at all, it should probably be from the sidelines, maybe, is what you're getting at. We've, we've gone long, which is great. I love that this half-hour comedy series essentially has provided <laughs> such rich fodder. But I just one more thing before we leave I wanted to, to mention because the article did – bring this to mind. It's this idea of the ancestors and spirits that pop up, right? And uh, there's an instance of this in the final episode that to me, you know, echoed a gospel passage as well. This is between Bear and the comic warrior spirit, William Knifeman, played hilariously by Dallas Goldtooth. I mean, this guy, he's, he's kind of both clown and sage at the same time. He's been appearing to Bear throughout the series. Here he is in their final encounter uh, where he, he gets serious and offers some sincere wisdom. So you're really leaving? Like for real? I'm proud of you, little brother. You deserve to be loved and you deserve to love. And that's what all those people in there are offering you. That's why you're here. Digging Fixico's grave. Hey, you spent all this time asking me questions. I got one for you. What have you learned, nephew, grandson? I learned that I don't gotta be the only leader. That I'm from an amazing community and I'm just proud to be a part of it. Ah, there it is! Finally! You got it, that's what I've been trying to tell you. We don't need more chiefs, we need more warriors. Ah, 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 ah. Hey, right on, brother. I sat up a bit 
when I heard that. You deserve to be loved and you deserve to love because it absolutely fit within the context of the community that that episode was yeah, really trying to get at, but also just felt like this echo of 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. And I don't know, it, it's maybe a moment, maybe another instance of this. I didn't have a phrase for it until I read Sandy's piece, but indigenized faith, you know, is, is I thought maybe that's just a, a little a little glimmer or a glimpse of what that might look like there in that exchange. Also, you know, we won't play the rest of it, but it's a very funny sequence too, of course. So what a character uh, William Knifeman was. And I was so glad to see, I knew he'd get an appearance in this finale, but I was very glad to see it. Anything else either of you want to make sure we touched on before we do uh, put a wrap on this? And just really quickly on, on what you shared, sometimes we think, you know, I don't know if this is Christian or this is whiteness, that, that like spirituality is super serious and that like, you know, wisdom is like, you know, you are all shushed and like there's this like something that's coming out of someone and like it's so reverential and sacred. That can happen. That's totally true. But also there's wisdom in even like everyday things and in, in the silliness of children and in just what we learn and like teenagers have so much wisdom as well. And so when you <laughs> say that, like, he's so funny and he's so irreverent and it's like, yes, why, why can't that be normalized? Why can't, <laughs> you know, like that's, everyone has some kind of wisdom and, and has mm. something to share to community and some, something to teach others. Well, I think Res Dogs has gone a long way towards normalizing it, at least for me. So so I'm grateful for that too. Thank you, Rosalind, for being a part of this conversation. And uh, maybe are, are things still rolling along? I think I saw they are with the FYI on Youth Ministry podcast. Do you want to mention where folks can find that, what it's all about? Sure. So the FYI on Youth Ministry is on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. We had just started a new season we're doing an audio blog, so you'll get recordings of our most popular blogs, and they're nice. really amazing. Yeah. All right. Very cool. And JR, I know for the fascinating podcasts, uh, I'm going to be joining you in a couple of yes, weeks, right, to talk about my book on horror movies, Fear Not. So I'm looking forward to being grilled by you for that. Anything <laughs> else you guys got going on? Uh, well, in honor of spooky season, I do want to say that I have a, a post that just went up at Sojo, which is each number of the Enneagram and a horror monster that represents the unhealthy <laughs> version of that number. And then some tips wow. for healing so you don't become a Freddy <laughs> or a Jigsaw or whatever. So oh, that that's is brilliant. The Enneagram yeah. is just, you know, the gift that keeps on giving, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> All right, we'll we'll link to that and to the podcast as well. Thanks to the two of you. I, I'm I really appreciate this talk we were able to have. Thank you, Jocelyn. Thank you, Rosalind. Think Christian is a denominational ministry, and that denomination, the Christian Reformed Church in North America, has its own lamentable history when it comes to mission schools for Native Americans. That college trip I mentioned in our Reservation Dogs conversation, that was to a CRC ministry in New Mexico. In 2016, the denomination began an investigation into that history and has since outlined a path for listening, confessing, and lamenting, as well as adapting its presence and process in those communities. We'll link to much more detailed information about all of that in the show notes 
for this episode. Getting back to Reservation Dogs in particular, what have you made of the series over these past three seasons? We'd love to get your thoughts, and the easiest way to do that is to send them to us by email at tcpodcast at thinkchristian.net. If you have comments about the show in general, we'd love to get those as well. And if you only have kind things to say, maybe leave those thoughts as a review over on Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate it. Even a quick star rating, that would be great as well. For those of you watching on YouTube, please go ahead and click that subscribe button. Thank you very much in advance. Now, if you're listening before October 23, there is still time to join us for the fall session of the TC Movie Club. We'll be gathering online to discuss horror. What is it good for? So this will be inspired by my new book, Fear Not, A Christian Appreciation of Horror Movies. Watch your favorite scary movie and then come join us on October 23. Sign up again at thinkchristian.net slash movie club to get the email that'll have the Zoom link for that event. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. 